Welcome to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. This podcast is an expression of our shared connection, and we are dependent on you, our community, for support. Please go to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny and either click on the donate button or bookmark the Amazon link through which we get a small percentage of all your purchases. Your support will allow Danny to continue his captivating talks and interviews. Hi, this is Danny Goldberg, and this is Rock and Rolls, my podcast to try to discuss the convergence of being a soul in the universe and the roles that we play. Uh, I believe that there are many, many paths to the same truth. One of the things I want to explore are people who've taken one of the paths I've taken, which is to be a student of the spiritual teacher Hilda Charlton. And I always knew that the first person I'd want to talk to about Hilda was Bobby Miller, who is my guest today. Like me, Bobby's list of Facebook friends falls into various categories, which are seemingly remote from each other, some from the so-called spiritual world and some from the so-called worlds of art, entertainment, and show business. Bobby is been a poet, an actor, a photographer. He's the author of four books of poetry and 18 books of photos, uh, including Fabulous, a photographic diary of Studio 54, Redux, which was re the reissue that recently came out. He was included in the 1995 American Book Award winning Aloud, Voices from the Neorican Poets Cafe. As a photographer, his work has been exhibited in New York, Palm Springs, and in Provincetown at the AMP Gallery, which currently has an exhibit called Superstars with a Z, and it includes photos of Grace Jones, Elton John, John Belushi, Donna Summer, Gloria Swanson, Andy Warhol, Muhammad Ali, and Truman Capote, among others. But as I say, he was and is a student of my spiritual teacher, Hilda Charlton, who I met in the early 1970s via Ram Dass. She passed away, in theory, in 1988. Her body is no longer with us, but to many of us, she's still a vivid presence in our daily lives. So Bobby, Hilda didn't usually like being called a guru, but now that she's not here to correct me, I do look at her as my guru, and I think you do as well. Is that the case? Um, I do, but you know, it's funny. I was thinking about that term, and I was thinking that once she actually, I, I asked her about that word, and um, she said, well, of course, there's the traditional usage of the word guru. But then she said, come with me. And she took me into another room where there was a mirror hanging on the wall. And she said, now look in there to see your real guru. And how do you spell the word? And I said, G-U-R-U. -U. And she said, no, G-U-R-U. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, which I thought was a great way of looking at the concept of the guru, because certainly you know, Hilda was was the ultimate teacher to me, and I'm sure to you too. Um, guru is a funny word, you know, uh, because I think that basically the guru leads you back to yourself. And so uh, it, it, is that the job of the guru or is the job of the guru to give us tools to use to find God? So I think both of those things are true. Right. I think they're true. A lot of things are true. But I just know, to me, because she always used to say, call me your teacher, you know, and I had a lot of teachers, but there was only one Hilda. Um, so I, I believe you told me a year or two ago when we were talking that your husband is an atheist. How yes. Does, how does that work? 
in, inside your head and on a day-to-day basis? Well, you know, it, it's interesting because um, I find I found in over the last 30 years that I've been on this kind of conscious journey that the people that I meet who call themselves atheists or agnostics, you know, one is, of course, that someone who doesn't believe in the idea of God and the other one does says they don't know what that is and they have no opinion. So for him, I think... And of course, it seems that the, an enormous amount of people I've met that have real issues with the concept of God are were raised Catholic or Jewish. And it seems to be a continuing thing that it must have been a very difficult journey for a lot of people who were raised in those two faiths. Now, in his case, he was raised Catholic and um, his family decided to leave the church after the the local church that they had attended said that his younger brother who was mentally and emotionally challenged uh couldn't come to school at the catholic school and they said well where's your compassion and sympathy then so that's was enough to make his family drop out of the church but he himself uh i think it had a lot to do with his experiences with nuns and you know we've all heard those stories yeah that all being said um you know, Hilda once said to me, it really doesn't matter which religion you choose, it, that's just a practice. And who is the person? You, you know, uh, there's that quote in the Bible that says, you know, you shall know them by their fruits. And, and, and so I, you know, I realize that's in reference to something else, but it applies here because um, who is this person and what are they like? How do they treat people? You know, I often think about Hilda and, and, and my husband and, uh, you know, even years ago when I was single and I was dating a, a, a guy named Indian Larry, who was a great famous bike builder. And uh, I was terrified of Hilda meeting him because, you know, he was covered in tattoos and he had uh, had been an ex-Catholic who had blown off one of his fingers to building a bomb at 14 to blow up the church. And he was vehement about his anti-godness. And um, But when Hilda met him, she didn't see any of that. All she saw was the essence of the person, that here was this great soul who was kind and loving and compassionate. And and the same thing is true of my husband, John. You know, he, he truly has all of those qualities. And if you never, ever mentioned religion or the word God to him, even a spiritually conscious person would be able to see his light, which shines really brightly. So I that sort of set me into a path of thinking, what is the most, what's more important here to me in this relationship? I've fallen in love with a person who doesn't share the same beliefs that I have. And those beliefs are are rooted in, you know, who I am as a person, how I live my life. But yet John is the same way. He he's never he would never he would never be rude to a person. He would never uh he he would give you the shirt off of his back. He truly embraces all of the best tenets of of a faith-filled person, but he just doesn't go for the entire concept that God is a real entity of any kind you know when in your interview with paul krasner i loved when he was saying how when people pray to him that when people pray they're just talking to themselves and if that makes them feel better well then that's fine by him and um in essence you know 
we all can believe what each of us believe, and it really doesn't matter what your religion is or what your faith is, um, because everybody's drawn a little circle around themselves and they live within that circle of belief. You know, what Hilda taught me was you draw a bigger circle around everyone that takes everyone in. And so if we're going to say we have to take everyone in, then that means we also have to take in a atheists and agnostics and people who have no faith-based uh, religion, so to speak. Right, but they're still part of the 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 one God, if, whether you use that word or not, that, that that we feel. Let me ask you this. A lot of your life has involved art, as has mine, although you're actually an artist and I work with and for artists. But so much of artistic impulse and what I cherish about artists is an individual vision. And I always give honor to people who I feel are more uh, following an inner voice that's uniquely theirs. And to me, those are some of the greatest artists. Yet a big spiritual idea that all great masters seem to have is the oneness of, of all creation. And so that the whole obsession with individuality sometimes in a spiritual path reads as ego that gets in the way of, 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 uh, of, en of enlightenment. How do you think about how to reconcile those two impulses? And what could you sh share with us about that? Well, you know, I have certainly. I mean, you know, when I met Hilda in 1980, I was coming off of a, an insanely worldly life of living in New York, being a photographer at Studio 54, you know, caught up in the world of the drugs of the 60s and the 70s. And, you know, I had lived in San Francisco. I went to San Francisco the summer of love and played that out until it was over by 1970. And then went to London when the whole punk rock thing exploded and then left and moved to New York in 73 and uh, lived through the 70s in New York. And by 1980, I had really completely uh, was ready to, to for, for a life change. I mean, I, I got ill. I had hepatitis and appendicitis. I had my appendix removed. I was in the hospital at St. John the Divine, which, of course, as you know, is right is where Hilda gave her classes. And um, I lived in the village. And the fact that they took me all the way from the village to 114th in Amsterdam to St. Luke's Hospital made no sense at all. Until later, in retrospect, when I realized that when they took me there and I woke up in this hospital room, someone, I don't know who, had left a spiritual book in my room and there was nothing to read and I read it. Now, I want to hear about that book and what happened after, but I just want to ask you, prior to that moment, had you had any thoughts at all about spirituality, any background, anything in the 60s and 70s that you had well, identified sure. with? And sure. if so, what was the context? Um, sure. Like, I remember being in Georgetown, because uh, I grew up in D.C. in Maryland, and I remember being in Georgetown in my early teens and meeting a uh, 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 Christian, born-again Christians, handing out literature on the street. And, you know, I was happy to talk to anybody in those days. You know, it was all hippie love and peace, and you just reached out to everyone. And though I uh, 
didn't really know anything about religion. My parents were agnostics and they were bikers. Um, and, and so I never had any of that training as a child, which um, Hilda once said to me, you know, you're so lucky that you had the parents that you had because uh, you never had anything uh, shoved down your throat or pushed on to you. It was up to you to find these things. So um, early on, I'd say probably, especially the summer of love, you know, I mean, everything was all about love 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 and that was great and that led us to this place of 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 uh, of you know loving your neighbor turning the other cheek and all of that all of those things that came out of the christian uh, doctrine sort of got merged into that and um and it, and I, it never really dawned on me until many years later when i sort of took up an active interest in religions and um, that I thought, oh, well, I remember the hippies saying these things. and But I didn't remember them ever specifically saying anything about Jesus or God or anything re regarding Christianity. It really was these I these great ideals that had come out of, of religion and into that hippie culture, so, or at least for me. Got it. So, t so now let's flash to 1980, you're in the hospital. You had appendicitis, I think. I had a hepatitis and appendicitis attack. Um, I had had my own cable show, and I had an appendicitis attack on the air. Uh, and I was interviewing Cookie Mueller, the actress and writer. And I was taken all the way to St. John the Divine, next door to St. John the Divine at St. Luke's Hospital. And I I read this book, and it was a, a it was written by, by a man named Maurice Cook, who wrote the Hilarion series. And um, I wasn't familiar with any of it, but you know, as I there was nothing to read, and so as I was reading it, I was thinking, yeah, yeah, I know that, I know that, that sounds familiar. Somehow, it all sounded right to me. Tell tell the listeners a little about who Hilarion is well, or was, and 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 those books, because I'm not sure everybody is familiar with them. Well, you know, in uh, the in theosophy, um, in the, the that whole movement that there was a movement that happened in the late 1800s in England that started was started by a woman named Helena Blavatsky, and she had been Russian, and she formed a group along with a man named uh, Colonel William Judge, and a woman named Annie Besant, and a British minister, not a Catholic minister, but a little a, a Christian church, local minister uh, named Charles Leadbeater. And they formed this sort of group and they were very interested in the concept that there were these um, invisible beings who had lived on the planet at some had had lives here and then had left and reincarnated and would come back at will and then finally had reached a point in their own evolution that they no longer needed bodies yet they remained close to the, the earth realm the physical realm and that anybody who tried to tune into them could be influenced by them. And I thought, well, what a fascinating idea. I mean, I wasn't sure I believed it, but it sure made for good reading. And these, and are, these are collectively sometimes referred to as the masters of the Great White Lodge. Is that correct? Is that correct? So when I got out of the hospital with this book, I wrote a letter to the, the people in Canada. This man, Maurice Cook, who lived in Toronto, uh, who was studying yoga and things of this nature, had discovered through these writings by Blavatsky, who wrote Isis Unveiled and The Secret Doctrine, 
each of which are seven and eight volumes long, explaining in great detail uh, how all of this worked. Yeah, I've never had the uh, concentration or patience to read all of them. <laughs> yeah. So um, at any rate, I wrote a letter to them and I was like, you know, well, I really liked your book and it really helped me at a time when I felt really sort of vulnerable because of, of being ill in the hospital. And they sent me a second book and I read that book. And now this is before there were computers. So I, as I was reading all of this stuff, I thought it was fascinating, but I wanted to validate it. And I went to the library and I couldn't find anything about this stuff. And um, and then I was walking down Fifth Avenue and 13th Street in Manhattan, and I walked past East West Bookstore, which had been there for many years. And I had friends in that neighborhood and had never once noticed that. That was a bookstore with a lot of books about yoga, meditation, Buddhism, and so forth, right? So what we would call a so-called New Age bookstore. Yeah, but I didn't know what that was at the time. So I walked in and the, the titles of the book were kind of jumping off the pages at me. And I thought, hey, this I think I'm on to something here. And then at random, I reached up and pulled a book off of the shelf, which uh, turned out to be a book that was written in 1932 called The Masters in the Path by Charles Leadbeater. And I literally opened it, just opened the book. And if, my, I, could, if I, I could just interject, when I first got to meet Hilda in person, uh, a couple of the people who live with her gave me a copy of that book, and it was the only time that from Hilda any book ever got to me. Uh, so it's funny we both we both connected with that same fairly well, obscure book from straight, someone who wasn't really Hilda wasn't really into books that much. No, I actually made the mistake of giving her a book as a gift one time, and she said, "Oh, thank you, dear, but I don't need books. If I want to know something, I just close my eyes and ask." <laughs> so I learned that lesson. But um, so at any rate, I bought this book and brought it home, and I read the book, and um, and then and oh, of course, when I opened the in the bookstore, when I opened the book, the first thing my eyes fell on it said, "Master Hilarion, the master of the fifth ray." and uh, the overseer of poetry and melodious utterance. Now, of course, being a poet, I was like, wow, this is so personalized. Mm. And so I bought the book, took the book home, read the book. I skipped the chapter. Uh, there was a chat sheet. There was a chapter on chapter three. It was all about the ego. But I skipped that chapter because I knew I didn't have one. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so, or so I thought. And so um, I, I, it, I started to have a series of synchronistic things happening in my life. I would think of someone, run into them. And it went beyond coincidence. And I kept telling myself, this is just a coincidence. But it happened so often and so many times uh, that I, it really began to bother me. So I, again, I wrote a letter to the people in Canada who had produced the Hilarion books. and. I spoke to uh, his wife, Christine, and she said, you know, you're so lucky you live in New York City. So she gave, she gave you a phone number and you called her or, or this was through? She gave me a phone number of one of Hilda's students. And she said, this woman is one of the greatest teachers on the planet. And she gives free classes in meditation and spirituality at St. John the Divine. And I thought, St. John the Divine? That was right next to the hospital. And it all, again, it was just overload of synchronicity. So I call this guy, one of Hilda's students, and he said, uh, yeah, her class is on Thursday, and this is where it is, and this is what time. So I went, 
And I went and I set up sort of up front and there were all these people sitting on the floor with white clothes on and beads around their neck and they're all sitting in lotus positions. And um, all of a sudden, all the hair on the back of my neck stood up and I turned around and I saw Hilda coming down the aisle. Now, something I just left out was that it took, I had a week before that phone call and before Hilda's class. And during that week, I had three dreams. And this woman kept showing up in my dreams and she was saving me. I was in a, a car accident and she turned, showed up and saved me. And I was in a, in a haunted house and she pulled me out of this haunted house. And every time in the dream, I would just catch a glimpse of her silhouette with this bright light around her. And so when I went to her class and she walked in and I saw her, in my mind, because I had been living such a worldly life, I thought, oh, you know, um, uh, well, I know her. Why do I know? I must know her from Studio 54. You know, she seemed so <laughs> familiar to me. And it, that idea now seems ridiculous. But um, so then she came out and she started her class. And everything she talked about was all of the things I had been reading in this book. So I went up to her afterwards to meet her to you know and 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 i didn't wasn't able to get close to her so i came back the next week and i came back the next week and then finally i um i had i you know i saw her after her lecture and her meditation she would do this healing thing where she would people would line up and come up on stage and she would talk to them and say what's wrong with you or what does the doctor say is going on for you and the two thousand people in the room would raise their hands and point them at the at that person and they would all ohm and then uh, she would turn around and touch them and they would fall to the ground and i had seen that as a child in a movie and i thought that was pretty bizarre and it just sort of turned me off but I loved her lecture so much and I loved her meditation so much that I I didn't usually stay for that well I was telling this to a friend of mine um, who had a 17 year old son who was listening and after his mother left the room the son said oh I want to come to that I want to see that and I said well you'll have to sit through this whole lecture and meditate I said I don't care so he came with me the following week and um, we, he sat on the edge of his chair and took it all in. And then when it was time for that, he said, come on, let's go up there. And I said, well, I'm not going up there. And he said, well, if it's, if it's phony, don't you want to know? And if it's real, don't you want to experience it? And I thought, well, okay. So I got up and went up there with him. And uh, he, she was seeing people four at a time, and I was fifth. So I stood there in line. He went on stage. Uh, she said, What's, you, there's nothing wrong with you. You're obviously beautiful, have a great light around you. And he said, oh, no, I, I just want a blessing. So she, I, heard, I saw her push the microphone away from the person who was holding the microphone for her, and she whispered something to him, and I couldn't hear it. And in my mind, I thought she probably said, look, I touch you, you fall down. It gives faith to these people in the wheelchairs down here in the front row. And so then she turned around and she went to put her hand on his head about eight inches from his head and he fell. And I thought, oh, he fell too soon. I hope nobody saw that. You know, and that's what my mind was doing. So then she turned and saw me and looked me in the eye for the first time. And she said, I know you. And I said, oh, I know you. And I started, she said, you talk too much. And I said, well, she sure knows me. So she said to me, she touched me on my chest and I started crying. And I thought, why am I crying in front of all these people? And then she said to me, this is your moment. 
It will never come again, not in this life or in any other. Just take it. And she put her hand on my forehead and I saw this explosion of light and I flew around the planet, woke up on the floor, had no idea how I had gotten on the floor, but I and I but I knew one thing. I knew that I was not the same person I had been when I walked in there and I would never be that person again. And from that moment on, I, I was with Hilda until she passed, which was uh, almost 10 years. Mm. So, um, but you know, it's interesting because I, she was always so full, as you know, she was, just when you thought you had it figured out, she would just hit you, you know, she'd give you this punch and with of awareness and you would think, how did she know that? How did she know I was thinking that? And so I had asked her if I could come, to, I heard her mention to the group that she had this Friday night blue card class. And I, and I thought, well, they probably levitated that. I want to see that. So I um, asked her if I could come to the blue card class. And she said, yes, j just, uh, you know, just show up. So I, it came the next night. To be, to be clear, she made up these little cardboard blue cards with yes. you know, very, very simple graphics on them. Well, the graphic was a pyramid with a dot in the center with a circle around it. Right. Yeah. And uh, that was the blue card. And uh, she gave them out through my eyes randomly to people. Obviously, she knew who she was giving them to. And then if you didn't have a blue card, you could come anyway, I think, as long as you just showed up. Well, yeah. So I showed up and, you know, and I had had this. Uh, so I showed up for and... Um, uh, and the girl at the front, at the door, this Ingrid, who we knew and loved, Ingrid said, uh, did, now, did she say that you would be a guest or that I should give you a card? Well, Mr. VIP Studio 54. I was like, well, a card, of course. <laughs> so she gave me my card and I went and I sat down and Hilda came out to start her talk. And the entire talk was about... Uh, about dishonesty and lying for God, like even lying to get God. And every time she would make a point, she'd look right at me in the audience. So I felt, oh my God, she knows I lied about the card. Well, by the end of the lecture, I felt reprieved that this was supposed to happen and I was supposed to have this experience. So that was when I went up to her afterwards to thank her for letting me come to the blue card class. And she said, oh, that's fine, dear. She said two things. Uh, go home and read chapter three of the Masters in the Path, which was the chapter I had skipped. And how did she know I had bought this book from 1932? And then she hit me with the right punch and said, and be, return, be sure you return the blue card on your way out. <laughs> and I was devastated. Of course, I realized in retrospect, it was all about ego and learning how to deal with all that stuff. But um and then Ingrid wasn't there, so I went home and I figured, well, next week I'll just put it in an envelope and put it on her desk. And that night I had a dream. And in the dream, the first thing I saw in the dream were the palms of my hands, only they were little brown hands. And then I moved my hands away in the dream and I saw this little brown body sitting on a dirt floor. And then I looked up and it was sitting in a cave. And then I saw this sadhu holy man uh, wearing a little tiny loincloth, standing on a rock in a yoga position. And I looked him in the eyes and it was Hilda's eyes. And I said, oh my God, that's Hilda. This was me 
and I had this complete recall of having been with her in another life. And so I woke up and I wrote it all down and I wrote Hilda a letter. I said, I know who you are. I know who I am. And if you tell me I have to wait a hundred more lifetimes to sit at your feet, I'll do that because all I want to do is sit at your feet. And I put the card in the envelope and I went to the class the following week and I put it up on her desk. And of course she read it while I was there and held it up and I went up wearing my little clean white yoga clothes and my mala beads because I was now spiritual as she used to say uh, phony spiritual and uh, and she said here sit right there and she pointed to the floor which was filthy and I thought to myself I'm going to sit on that dirty floor and she gave me a look and I threw myself on the floor and I sat there and she turned around and handed me the letter that I had written and said, yes, dear, this is absolutely true. Keep this letter always. And I still have the letter. And then she gave me back the, the card and said, this is yours. You come anytime you want. And then I never left. And then I was with her for all those years. Now, let me just go back to the beginning of the conversation for a minute. So if you tell your husband this story, which I assume you have, because I've heard it now twice and it's so fantastic. Does he think you're making it up or does he feel you've just had experience he hasn't had but he believes that you had the experience um he is smart enough no not to to know not to argue with me <laughs> uh, at the same time he i he's willing to give me the benefit of the doubt and he is a, a smart enough man to know that this was my experience i'm not giving I'm not given to making up stories. He's willing to believe me, but uh, in his mind, um, that is comes from something in the imagination. He, in his mind, he's rationalized to think that uh, this is the brain working. The brain makes up these stories. People write books. People make art. People are creative. You know, in his mind, he doesn't. He it, it it comes from the mind. It comes from the con the conscious mind of man, you know. And in my mind, things come from the conscious mind of God, and they come into us. And if you are open to those things, you can get an enormous amount of wisdom. I mean, it's like Hilda saying, you know, I don't read books because I just get quiet and listen. And I've learned over the years that I I can't trust my own stupid mortal monkey mind i really have to get quiet and remove my own thoughts about something and see what comes to me and uh, and sometimes it comes to me and sometimes it doesn't and when you say you have to get quiet do you have a particular practice that you do to get quiet well, I do, um, and it's kind of, uh, it's become very individualized to me because, um, you know, Hilda exposed me to so much as she did all of us. And, you know, she never said, oh, don't go to this one or don't go to that class. Or she'd just say, oh, dear, that's lovely. How wonderful. We'll have a wonderful time, you know. And she left it up to each of us to find our way. And I and there were times when I, if I was in any kind of deep confusion and she sensed it, she would take me aside and say, listen, kid, you, you're thinking too much. You need to let go of your thinking. You need to let go of your mind. You need to, you know, sit quietly and let your mind fall away and see what 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 is revealed to you. And um, and so I developed a practice much like you in the beginning when I would try to meditate. It always turned into prayer. 
I, and I said this to Hilda once, I said, I cannot meditate because as soon as I sit and close my eyes and try to meditate, all I do is my inner voice begins to pray. And I pray for world peace and I pray for people that I know. And I pray and, you know, and I, I, I don't pray so much for myself. Uh, and even during my illness, uh, you know, in, in the hospital, and I had a second round of a, health, a major health scare like 20 years later after Hilda had passed and um and I I I never I say for me it's like look God is bigger than me and God is bigger than anything and if you're going to say that you know for me I say God is everywhere in everything in everyone there is no place God is not so that's certainly bigger than me so I tend to uh, I, I tend to, when I do meditate, I, I can, it's a disciplined practice which requires stilling my mind, controlling my breath, letting myself fall into a place of the great abyss, and, and trusting that, uh, that I'm going to be wherever I need to be in those moments. And sometimes those things are very uh, spiritual or very uh, religious, seemingly, re I hate to use the word religion, I rarely use it. I'm not sure I believe in religions. You know, I, I see the fault in all of them. I see the shortcoming in all of them. I also see the great things that are that are there and available in terms of practices. Um, but all of that being said, it's a little overwhelming for me, and I, and I think it's overwhelming for a lot of people. And I always say to people, and, um, and I was, had taught a yoga class for a long time under Hilda's um, guidance, and she used to have had a standing sort of appointment with her on Monday mornings where she would say, well, what are you going to talk about tonight, kid? And I'd say, well, I'm going to talk about turning the other cheek, or I'm going to talk about having a positive attitude, or how to incorporate uh, forgiveness into your life. And, uh, and, and then she would say, okay, so then she would say, well, read me what, you, what you've written, and I'd have these notes. And she would, oh, no, no, that's, that's not correct here. And she would tell me, and I would correct it. And then she'd say, well, what time is your, your class? And I'd say, well, it's at 7 o'clock. And she'd say, okay, I'm going to tune in to you at 7 o'clock. And so I'd go to my class and I would talk about the things I wanted to talk about. And, and then at that time, suddenly I would just sort of step aside and listen to a lecture that would come out of my mouth. And it, there was some guidelines for me to refer to, but m the majority of it really just came out of, out of my mouth. And, um, and then later when I would see Hilda and she said, oh, well, how, how, was your, how was your meditation class? And I would tell her and she would make reference to the things that I had talked about, which I had never discussed with her. But she did that so many times. <laughs> I want to say at this point, if, you know, Hilda never wanted or had an organization she never asked money for money. You couldn't really give her money. Uh, but after she passed, some of her students, who she referred to us all as kids, did create a website. And they've published some of her lectures transcribed in books. And, and uh, there are some photos of her on the website as well. And there are about 100 recordings of some of her Thursday night uh, classes that you can get. I think it's three bucks for a download. Uh, and that website is hildacharlton.com. Neither Bobby nor I have anything to do with it, but I sure appreciate it. And if anyone is curious 
from this conversation to learn more about her or tune into her in a different way, I recommend going to that website, hildacharlton.com. And on that website, uh, just as an aside, you can also find her, her books and her her bio, her autobiography, which is called Hellbent for Heaven, which covers her life from uh, being born on Seven, Seven Sisters Road in London to leaving California and going to India. And that was where that her life story ended. Uh, and it's interesting how, because when you read it, you're really reading the story of this person, this human being, and all the things that happened to her that led her to this place. And then the life, of course, that happened after India when she returned to the United States is all made up of her lectures which are are really just so thrilling because uh, I mean even I mean I remember when she passed and we were at her memorial at St. John and there were like 5,000 people there and I was ushering and sort of taking people through their seats and things and I was very calm and centered and I felt really fine about this and that it was time for her to move on and I couldn't stand to think that you know she was 80 something when she passed and you know she had health issues and I didn't want to see her suffering all of that and I was fine with it but it was at the moment when I looked back at the room of people and I looked at each of their faces and I realized that every single person in that room had had a personal experience with her and I lost it it was overwhelming to me that how one person I mean it's one thing when you're an accomplished writer or actor or a person and you give lectures but with Hilda you people had personal experiences with her she would pick up the phone and call you and talk to you on the telephone that was unheard of for for a guru or a yogi or someone to do that yeah yeah it was pretty uh, pretty amazing um You've um, you talked about your second health scare, and I I think it would be interesting to share with people. Again, both you and I are in our sixties. I pray and hope that we stay healthy for a long time to come. But sooner or later, we all have to deal with the limits of the body, and uh, and and I think your your dealing with it has always inspired me. Well, in two thousand two, I had meningitis and pneumonia, and um, I went into the hospital because of both of those issues and then I went into a coma and I was in a coma for a week. Now they say that people who are in comas aren't conscious and they know nothing but that isn't true because from my experience I woke up or came to a place of awareness or consciousness and I couldn't open my eyes, I couldn't speak, I couldn't move, I couldn't hear, but I was fully conscious and I was panicked. I panicked. I thought, well, am I dead? Am I in a coma? Uh, where am I? And I and nothing was getting me anywhere. And it just seemed like a minute was an hour and it went on and on. And then I forced myself back into unconsciousness. And then I came back to consciousness and I was in the same place, staring at that gray screen when your eyes are closed, but no sound, nothing else. And 
I thought, what am I going to do? And suddenly out of the corner of my eye, I saw Hilda and she, uh, and this was of course after she'd passed, many years after she had passed. And she walked into my field of vision and she said, listen, she said, I cannot help you from where I am. And you know, you can come on this side and there are plenty of people who, here who you know and love. I've buried over 300 friends uh, and, and, and family members. So, and she said, or you can go back on the other side and there's a life ahead for you that you're not even aware of yet. She said, but please don't stay here in this nothing place and I can't help you and there's no wrong choice. And she walked out of, the of my field of vision and I'm sure if someone had, was looking at my physical body my mouth was probably wide open in shock because it was in it was in color technicolor she was living breathing she was young she looked beautiful and there was no way around that i was either had lost my mind or it was real so i forced myself i willed myself to wake and i woke up and there was all these people in my room and um, and that was that. And I I recovered, and that's been 13 years now. And I'm in Knockwood. I'm in great health. Life is great. But um, you know, I for me, uh, in retrospect, um, you know, I saw her do so many amazing things in the time that I knew her. Even years before I had ever awakened to an awareness of that uh, such things existed with Hilda. It was just an av average everyday thing, you know. She, somebody would call on the phone. They were sick. They needed something. Hilda would talk to them. You'd talk to them three days later, and they were well, you know. But she wouldn't take any credit for it. Like if you if you credited her and said, "Oh, Hilda, you're a great healer," she said, oh, "I don't do anything. I I do nothing. God does everything. I don't do anything." Now, speaking of these beings who say that. I've also heard you or talk about Yogi Ram Sharad Kumar, who, who always said that he was a beggar and all glory to the father. And Yogi Ram Sharad Kumar, there are a couple of books about him. And he lived in India. I don't believe he ever left India. No, he uh, stayed in uh, Tiruvannamalai in South India until he passed in 2003. So talk about him a little bit. I know you consider him a very important well, I do. You know, it's funny. I went to Hilda's class one night and uh, they she always had there were always people with tables set up in the back of her lecture hall before her her classes and they would be selling, you know, beads and candles and pictures of saints and things. And I picked up this small black and white headshot of this yogi and he had blue eyes and he had a beard and there was just such a wonderful light about his face and I thought oh and so I started to have a conversation with the girl that was selling them and Hilda came in so she's oh we have to put everything away she said just put you know go ahead keep it I'll tell you who he is later well I put it in my shirt pocket forgot all about it and about three months later I was at home and I took the shirt out of the closet and I found this photograph and I said oh my god I don't even know your name so I put him on my little puja table where I had pictures of other saints and incense and can a candle and I lit a candle to him and I said gee welcome to my house but I don't even know your name I sure wish I knew your name 
Literally, Danny, 10 minutes later, there was a knock on my door. There was a hippie cab driver that lived on the top floor of my building in the village. And he said, oh, are you burning Indian incense? And he said, oh, I lived in India and I love Indian things. And, and he was on his way to the trash room to get rid of a stack of books. And I said, well, what have you got there? And he said, oh, a bunch of books. And I said, oh, well, can I have them? And so he gave them to me. And of course, Be Here Now by Ram Das was in there um, and a bunch of other spiritual books. But there was a one small book out of a hundred that were ever printed um, by um, Kaylor Wadlington who, uh, uh, about Yogi Ram Surat Kumar. And there he was on the cover of this little book 10 minutes after I had said this to him. And Kaylor came to Hilda Meetings a lot, yes? Yes, yes. So I then from that point on, I was determined. I, I just said, oh my God, th I have to meet this guy. So about... Five or six years later, uh, and I had heard many stories after that about Yogi Ram Sarakumar, and about, about five or six years later, Hilda was doing a trip back to India with some of her students, and I went along. And um, when I got there, um, a group of people were going to take a, a, a car down to Tirvanamalai, which was like about a nine-hour drive from where we were, and they were going to go see Yogi Ram Sarakumar. And I said, I have to go. And Tirvanamalai is a is a holy place in India, also because Ramana Maharshi lived there for his, I believe, for most of his life. And yes, it's also at the foot of the Arunachala Mountain, which right. is considered where Shiva lives at the top of that mountain. And there are all these sadhus and yogis and holy people who live in caves on that mountain. Um, so I went. And uh, the person who was our guide, we got there late at night and said, um, you know, uh, just stay in your room in the morning so I don't have to come and find all of you. And um, I'm going to go find him because he didn't have a house. He kind of lived in he lived in a field and then he lived in the, in the temple. And so I the next morning I woke up and I'm sitting there meditating and I'm having this incredible meditation. And I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is really something else, this place. And then there's a knock at the door so I thought it was Victor coming to get us so I didn't even get up I just reached over and opened the door and in comes Yogi Ram Surat Kumar by himself and he raises his hand and I thought what's he have in his hand and it looked like a bright light or a flashlight a small light in his hand and I looked at it and it threw me out of my body and I went completely into this complete state of bliss uh, well an hour or so goes by and then the Victor comes and knocks on the door and says, well, where are you? Everybody's downstairs. So I sort of got up and wobbled downstairs, half in my body, and I get down there, and they're all sitting in this tiny little room with Yogi Ram Sarakumar, and there's one spot at his feet. And so I go and I sit, and he, is, he had this incredible, incredible laugh, and he's laughing at me. Well, so then things sort of calm down, and he doesn't talk. He just sort of looked at people, his fingers continued to move as though he had a mala bead or a rosary in his hand. And you could see his lips chanting a mantra, but you couldn't hear him. But it was just an automatic thing. It never stopped. It was always doing that. And then finally he started crying. And someone in the group said, Swami, why are you crying? And he said, oh, well, so many of you come from the other side of the world to see this beggar. This beggar knows nothing. This beggar can tell you nothing. Well, I'm sure there we were like 15 crestfallen faces. And he says, well, I, the, this beggar can tell you this. It makes no difference by what name you call the father. 
You can call the Father Divine Love. You can call the Father Jesus, Krishna, Rama, Buddha, Hera. You can make up your own name for God. If your intention is to speak to the Father, the Father hears you. So he said, so in that case, dedicate everything you say, everything you think, and everything you do to the Father. And the Father will give you everything. The only problem will be is that most likely you won't want those things after you've asked for them. Now, Hilda, Hilda used to say that too, yes? Yes. It's the same sort of thing. It's like, you know, I'm going to, we find ourselves making deals with God, even people who have, who have a real deep faith. You know, oh God, if you just do this for me, I'll, I won't ever cuss again, or I'll never drink again, or I'll never be rude to somebody. You make these deals with God. And really, I don't think God could, I think God could care less. I don't think God has a conscious awareness of what we do wrong or right. I think that's a construct that came out of religion to control people. I think God simply is. And it's an, it, if you get into the wave, if you get into the groove, and you can create your own groove, and, it, and you take up these practices and you add those to that, you can really go a long way and you can have a real happiness in life and not a transitory happiness that comes and goes. You know, Sai Baba used to say, you know, uh, ha- uh, money comes and goes, you know, love comes and grows, mm. you know. So rather than asking God to fix things in my life, I just ask God to give me the strength to endure the things that I have in my life and to give me the insight to know how to handle the things that happened in my life. But even that is no guarantee. I've come to the conclusion after all of these years that God is. You know, Hilda showed me once her favorite postcard, and it was a picture of the Milky Way with an arrow pointing to into the Milky Way saying, you are here. And, you know, I read recently that some of the astronauts that went to the moon, they all developed this condition where once you're outside of, once you're off the planet and you're looking at the planet and you're seeing that it's this tiny little speck in the, in the middle of all of this space, suddenly things like differences of racism and sexism and homophobia and anger towards your neighbor, all of those things tend to become so petty and tiny compared to who we are. We're just these little beings floating through space on this little rock. And because of that, I now I'm a lot more patient and sympathetic and understanding about other people and their their beliefs. I don't care what other people believe. You know, it's it's each person's journey. And your journey is your journey and my journey is my journey and nobody's journey is better than anybody else's. And um you know, Hilda those simple things that always come back to you. Hilda said don't point your finger at others. You'd have three pointing back at yourself. You go through life with this attitude and at the same time you're getting exhibits uh made at galleries you're getting books published you're you're dealing with celebrities you're dealing with money you're dealing with self-promotion and social networking um do you do you find that always harmonious with this consciousness does this consciousness feed that does it distract you from this consciousness how do you a a lot of people have a hard time 
coexisting with it. I, I find a, uh, sometimes it's almost like waking and dreaming states. They seem so disconnected from each other, but I, I, I'm determined to try to connect them more. Uh, and I'm wondering how you go about it. I think that I think that there's a conscious discipline that is required to live in the world without becoming of the world. You know, um, I mean, there's just as much God in Donald Trump as there is in you and me. And Donald, though I don't like Donald Trump and I don't, uh, I'm not a supporter of Donald Trump, you know, it's those types of situations that call for a real test within your own being. Who am I? Do I really? I mean, Hilda once said to me, oh, kid, you know, you, you, you say you love the world. You love everybody. You love the world. Well, that's really nice. But can you love them one at a time? Can you love each one of each person individually, regardless of their shortcomings or what you perceive as their shortcomings? Because someone else's shortcomings is merely their own effort to move forward in their evolution. It's not any of my business. You know, the, two of the greatest mantras that Hilda gave me was KYBMS, keep your big mouth shut. When you want to criticize someone else, when you want to gossip about someone else, when you want to tear someone else down, you just bite your tongue. And I had bitten my tongue so much in this life that I'm surprised I, I still have a tongue, you know. And, <laughs> and the other thing was, um, um, you know, mind your own business. It's like I must say a million times a day, it's not my business. You know, the, the judgmental mind wants to judge someone. Oh, look at her or look at him. You know, he thinks he's talented or he th she thinks she's so smart. You know, it's not that's not in my business. My business is what is in front of me that God brings to be in front of me. And I may not like it sometimes. I might not like the challenges that I'm given, but I, I always find a way through them. And, uh, and sometimes the only way through them is by, you know, you cannot go through the fire without burning up. Well, sometimes you have to just burn up your ego. You just have to burn up your own opinion. You have to burn up your own judgment and you have to let it go because it's not my business. It's, it's between, you know, it's between me and God. It's between you and God. It's between each person and God. And then you get to, well, then for the people who don't believe in God or that word pushes all their buttons you know then i say it's between you and your deepest self who is your deepest self How, what at that point at nighttime when you climb into bed and pull the covers over your head and you're not asleep and you're reviewing your day and can you live with who you are? Can you live with how you treat other people? Can you live with any unfairness that you that you are guilty of in your own life? Because nobody really is, there's no big God police that are gonna come along and say, oh, well, you're, you're gonna be punished or you're going to, you know, we call it karma, yeah. Okay, it's my karma, but karma is everything, everything we think, everything we say, everything we do, good, bad, or indifferent. It's just like the pebble going into the water, the rings go out, they hit the side of the pond, and they come back in, and it's endless. And I can't stop it, and you can't stop it. So what do we do? We try to ride the wave. You know, if you're a surfer, in surfer terms, you try to ride the wave. You're not going to force that wave to do what it wants to do. You have to ride with the wave. 
So I, you know, there's, and you know, I remember think of Alan Cohen, who you know very well too, who's a great writer and spiritualist. And, you know, he wrote a great book called You Can Find God in the Supermarket. Well, you know, you can, you can find God everywhere. You can go into a meeting with some big CEO of a large corporation and he, he that, that guy doesn't have any, he doesn't care what your personal feelings are. He has an agenda. And so you either have to surrender to that person's agenda and let them go their way, or, you, or you're foolish and you try to attempt to re-steer something that's bigger than you are. Instead, that simple saying, let go and let God, is how I deal with everything. Well, I don't see that we could possibly have a better ending than that. So I thank you so, so much. Bobby and uh, thanks so much, Danny, for inviting me to speak. I'm so honored because of your two previous guests, uh, who are both big heroes of mine, as you are. So it's really great to um, to have this opportunity to share Hil at least a lot of Hilda's work. I, I, you know, my words are just you know again they just come out of my monkey mind. So <laughs> cool. All right. Well, I'm very fond of that monkey mind. God bless. To be continued. You, Danny. Bye. Take bye. Thanks for listening to Danny Goldberg's Rock and Rolls Hour. We appreciate your support and hope you will continue that support by going to mindpodnetwork.com slash Danny. Thank you.